you for spending some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past year, we've seen increasing numbers of hate crimes against Asian Americans being reported. And more recently on Tuesday, March 16th, Robert Aaron Long murdered eight people, including six Asian American women at Georgia massage parlors. Law enforcement's hesitancy in naming his actions as racially motivated is part of a longer history of ignoring or minimizing racially motivated attacks against Asians in America. The rise in reported hate crimes are but one way that COVID-19 is affecting Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. So to talk more about the multiple effects of the pandemic on these communities, today I'm joined by Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong. Dr. Vivian Shaw is a college fellow in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University and the lead researcher for the AAPI COVID-19 Project, a multi-method investigation into the impacts of the pandemic on the lives of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Dr. Shaw was a postdoctoral fellow in the Weatherhead Center for International Relations Program on US-Japan Relations, also at Harvard, and her research has received grants and awards from the National Science Foundation, the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, the Natural Hazard Centers, and other institutions. Christina Ong is a PhD student in sociology at the University of Pittsburgh, studying the development of Asian America in the 1960s through the 1980s through an in-depth case study of New York City's basement workshop. Her research interests span topics related to diaspora, racial justice, and transnational feminisms, and she's the project manager for the API COVID-19 project. Additionally, Christina hosts the podcast Seats at the Table, which seeks to elevate the perspectives of activists and immigrant women. Welcome, Vivian and Christina. How are you two doing? Doing well. I don't have a coffee in front of me, but it is in my heart. Yes, coffee in your heart. I, look, I love that. <laughs> that's, that's a great <laughs> motto. Hi, everyone. Hi, Sana. Yeah, same. I don't have coffee with me because I have a little bit of acid reflux that's developing as I oh. eat. <laughs> so I have some I have some tea instead and some water. Uh, but coffee also in your heart, right? <laughs> but not too much. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad to have both of you here with us this morning. Um, obviously such an important project and we'll get all the way into this multifaceted project. And I know it covers so many different key areas, but I want to start with um, just having a chat about the recent events, um, the recent mass shooting in Atlanta. And if you could just talk about, you know, some of your reactions to that in context of this research that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it really has um, taken us aback. I don't think it is shocking, but it's very troubling uh, to find that out on, I guess, was that Tuesday night? Or mm -hmm. yeah, on Tuesday night. Um, and I think that my first reaction, just as a person, not necessarily as a researcher, was, you know, thinking about how um, our communities are already stratified, right? And how there's already you know, even amidst this um, greater um, conspicuousness of racism 
And I say that rather than an increase or rather like kind of a new racism, right? Rather just becoming more visible. Um, there are different types of vulnerabilities within that. And, um, and so my first thought was about how um, these women working um, in um, the service industry as body workers, as massage workers, um, you know, they don't have the same privileges that say I do in terms of being able to stay at home and, you know, do work remotely on Zoom. Uh, they had to physically go out there and in, in part because of being more um, physically um, uh, available or kind of having this much closer um, interfacing with the public because of um, having to work uh, outside their homes, uh, they were particularly vulnerable to this attack. Um, and so it really, I think, um, hits home the fact that we need to think about these other forms of inequality within Asian America, rather than uh, simply discussing anti-Asian racism as something that um, affects our community as a whole, to look at what are the different communities within Asian America um, that are differently impacted by um, this intensification. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Christina. I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with what, what Vivian says. And I think the, the first thing I actually thought about when I heard the news, because actually um, an interviewee of mine who's um, an Asian American activist and artist who's in her 70s in New York City texted me and said, oh no, I heard about what happened in Atlanta. I was like, what happened in Atlanta? Like what? Like, um, so I looked up the news and the first thing I thought about was in 2018, Annie Nguyen, who was a Vietnamese nail salon worker, business owner, was um, murdered by a white young white woman who didn't want to pay her $23 salon bill. And it just made me remember how taken for granted, particularly Asian uh, working class women are when it comes to this kind of, as Vivian says, body work, things that are so actually really, really intimate forms of business, right? You're like a Vietnamese nail salon worker is holding your hand for upwards of an hour and a half. And like for folks to not see that humanity in a person, it just really, really hit me hard actually um, when I heard the news about Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Similarly, you know, I had friends kind of texting me, right, the news as it was breaking. And as more and more details came out, I was thinking, you know, similar to the thoughts that you were having, but also just feeling the compounding kind of emotional toll of a whole year of being in the pandemic, a whole year of I think this increasing visibility, right, Vivian, that you said, and I think that's just the, the best way to talk about, it, right, this increasing visibility of racism um, that Asians in America are experiencing. Um, and so thinking of that, I was really excited to see the project that you two are working on. So I think I remember seeing kind of like the announcement on social media that you all, I think, had gotten the grant or received funding to move forward with this project. So could you just tell us a little bit more about how um, this project came about? Yeah, so, um, well, first, it's very much a collaborative effort, and I don't think it would have been a team project of the size if uh, one of our uh, our team members, Amy Zhang, um, if she had not sent me an email, and we both, um, Amy's in the grad program that I did my PhD at, um, and she sent me an email saying, oh, you know, I, I see that, I saw from uh, social media that you're interested in this, and if you ever need help, you know, or want to collaborate, let me know, and so, like, if, 
if there hadn't been that kind of like serendipity, uh, yeah, serendipity of Amy reaching out to me, we may not actually have a team. So thank you to Amy for taking that initiative. Um, but, uh, you know, basically I had, um, I did my dissertation project on, um, on social movements after disasters. And one of the main threads in that project was looking at um, the intensification um, of hate speech uh, targeting ethnic minorities in Japan. So in that case, it was resident Koreans. And, um, and the counter movement um, against that, which was essentially kind of a nationwide anti-racism movement. So I've always kind of been very interested in thinking about this relationship between um, between disasters and racial politics, right? So we already know that disasters um, have um, very unequal effects on different communities um, that are racialized or gendered um, that also kind of happen along the lines of uh, income and um, disabilities. But I was very interested in disasters as also having this kind of cultural and political di dimension, right? And so that's kind of how I was exploring that. And so it was interesting because I had actually just presented on that research um, for this ethnography group at Harvard. And then, um, you know, my colleague who um, was another postdoc, you know, she invited a number of us out to, um, as Harvard postdocs, you know, just to chat. And there she had mentioned to me, you know, I think that actually um, what you had researched for your dissertation really is linking up with what we're seeing now with the pandemic, because this is kind of the early days of the pandemic, like late February, I think, early March. And um, we were seeing a lot of stories about people not going to Chinatowns, right? Or, um, you know, people really just kind of, uh, I think at that point, it was less about overt violence, and it was more about this avoidance of um places that were seen as Asian, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so she made that suggestion. It's like, oh, huh, you know, that that makes sense. And it's funny because like when you're so into your research, you don't necessarily like see all the connections um, all the time. So I put out a call on Twitter uh, just to kind of see what sort of stories were, um, were floating around. I wasn't doing, you know, formal interviews at that point. And based on some of the stories that came out, I realized that um, to think about anti-Asian racism, um, you have to look at multiple dimensions of lived experiences, right? So um, for instance, parents dealing with their children going to school, uh, people going on dating websites, right? So really kind of different spaces that um, were connected in some way, but very different, right? And so because of that, and because of the scope of how much this is affecting um, Asian American life, I realized that I had to expand this and not make it just me alone doing this, right? So I kind of then started to recruit people who I knew mostly. Um, and then some people have, um, you know, joined our team because they just found out about us. Um, you know, they emailed us and they were really great fit. So we brought them on. And so that's just really how the project came about. Mm -hmm. I love this collaborative effort and exactly as you said, having folks with these different areas of expertise that can say, hey, what about this? What about that? Because we can definitely get laser focused, you know, <laughs> in our particular kind of area. Uh, Christina, how did you come to join this project? Yeah, I, I was one of the folks that uh, Vivian is connected to on Twitter, uh, so that's how we know each other too. Um, for folks who don't know, academic Twitter is a very like supportive, generally speaking, <laughs> platform. And, depending. And, yeah, depending on the day, I think, depending <laughs> on who's, who's doing the talking. Um, but, but that's generally how I get connected to professional connections. So if there's 
uh, undergrad or graduate students who are listening in who want to plug in and don't know how I would recommend um, looking at, at some academic Twitter hashtags. Um, but anyway, so I was connected to Vivian through Twitter and we had also met at a sociological conference uh, a couple years ago and befriended each other. And so Vivian reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. And I don't know if others listening in are similarly like this, but when I get overwhelmed, like I was at the beginning of the pandemic, I take on as many tasks as possible <laughs> and not think about how overwhelmed I am, which just seems a little counterintuitive. Um, but I- It's a coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah, it's a coping mechanism. And I wanted to jump at the chance to feel more connected to a broader um, research community because in the university for grad students at the PhD level, it can be a little isolating and we're not really trained on how to do collaborative research, which I think is really actually a disservice. Like you gain so much when you learn from your peers. And so I really was excited about the opportunity to work alongside folks. And as Vivian mentioned, there's a big team. We have 12 uh, core team members. We have four RAs this semester. I sometimes have to count each person on the website because I don't remember the number off the top of my head, right? <laughs> yeah. I think you do too, person, right? Yeah. I do, yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's hard to manage, but I think it's also, it's giving <laughs> the project so much more depth than if it was just like Vivian and me or Vivian and like two people, right? So. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is my first time ever leading a team. Um, so that was, you know, so it's, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I was not the best student in college and, and I'm, you know, my friend always says like, why do you always lead with that? But um, that's just part of my identity. So when I think about like who I was during group projects, I was probably that annoying one who like would get distracted and like maybe not contribute as much. So it was my first time like leading a team. Uh, and I was like, oh no, oh no, how am I going to do this? Like, I've never been a boss, but I think what helped was that I've had really bad bosses in the past. And so that helped me figure out like what not to do, right? So not, not being manipulative and whatnot. So that kind of is what's guided me and it worked out. It was also because, you know, um, the team, like everyone is like contributes so much, uh, but you know, I have to give a special shout out to Christina and Amy, um, for just like leading, um, a lot of the initiatives. And I think like, you know, Christina became the project manager because she's doing so much. It's like, okay, I got, you know, you have to take on this title now so that you're not just like doing this stuff without recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that it's a big team of folks so that you can cover so many different areas. And Vivian, I know you mentioned very briefly, right, some of those areas that the project is focusing on. Uh, but I know there are six kind of overarching areas for the project. So labor and the economy, community organizing and advocacy, health, education, family and caregiving, and then these online spaces. And, you know, I thought it was so important where you said, you know, we're thinking about the impacts of COVID-19, but also this anti-Asian uh, racism in these multiple, seemingly separate, but very much overlapping areas, right? of our lives. So I love that it's really this comprehensive look of how COVID-19 is impacting all of us um, because I think, you know, our lives aren't kind of separate <laughs> spheres. They are very much interconnected. Um, so I'd love to hear more um, and start to kind of get into some of the main findings that you have so far. I know it's an ongoing project, um, but if there's one area that you might want to start with and you can share some of like some of the findings you have so far. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, that's thanks, Senator, for bringing up the six different areas. I think 
as researchers, we try and create like discrete things to study. And with this project, we found it's just so hard to disentangle them. Uh, but we're doing our best to try and you know, be focused. But in terms of our, our preliminary uh, findings, we've come across two sort of main themes that um, relate to sort of all these overlapping sections, I suppose you could call them. Um, so the first is risk assessment or risk management. And then the second one um, is exacerbation of pre-existing social inequalities, which is sort of what we were alluding to in our earlier conversation. But um, I think the risk assessment one is really, really important for us to focus on first, because um, for example, I think everybody is, you know, during the pandemic is worried about public health, is worried about going out and catching COVID. But we find that in our in our preliminary interviews so far, which we've conducted 40 of them, um, our participants talk about you know having to weigh the options of managing health risks, but also anti-Asian sentiments, risks involved with potential occurrences of experiencing racism. And a good number of them have disclosed to our interviewees, myself included, that they actually feel more worried about the violence they might encounter. And this is this is as far back as we started our interviews in July and the first way round sort of ended in late October. So this isn't even this year, right? So um, I think allowing folks to understand that extra added layer of, of negotiation that folks who are within the AAPI communities or folks who, who uh, people assume to be our Chinese are experiencing um, is just like this extra emotional psychological burden that um, I don't think has really been unpacked um, in the broader sphere so far. Yeah, and I think that often when people discuss risk, right, or people discuss safety or danger, um, it often gets treated as a binary, right? Is something safe or is it not safe, right? I think even when people just talk um, about uh, you know, the pandemic is often in the context of a binary of, you know, closing down everything or keeping things open, right? Whereas more often it's something in between. And so I think what we have found um, with some of our interviews is that rather than there being um, a set of options that are uh, no risk um, or and risk-free or risky, it's usually something in between. And so um, our respondents are often toggling between different types of risks, right, at the same time and weighing which risk they are willing to take versus not. Um, I mean, this can happen in a number of contexts. So we see that this happened, um, you know, one of the people we've interviewed um, is a nurse who works with, um, who helps uh, um, deliver babies, right? And so early on in the pandemic, she was talking about um, having to balance her own personal safety with the well-being of her patients, right? Because for a lot of the patients, it was very, um, there were a number of rules that were kind of set in place to try to um, decrease the risk of, you know, COVID transmission, um, such as kind of keeping partners outside of the delivery room. But this was then kind of creating these other types of emotional burdens, right? Um, and it was very scary for them. So, so in that example, she's kind of talking about um, balancing the risk of um, her kind of having increased exposure versus, you know, the sort of well-being of her patients, right? Um, but I think as Christina said, then you add on top of that, the, um, the risk, uh, the component of anti-Asian violence and how that um, is also impacting people and is another form of risk that they have to negotiate. I actually just jumped off a call um, about half an hour ago 
and um, it's a you know it's a group of um, Asian American and Pacific Islander um, researchers and policy workers. And one of the things they're talking about from their earlier research is that um, when we think about lower numbers of um, testing um, and um, and you know trying to get like accurate public health measures, there's also this issue of a lot of Asian. Um, Americans and Asian immigrants feeling uncomfortable about leaving their homes, right? So that can also just affect um, their access to healthcare. So this is kind of really compounded um, in terms of what risk means in this context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's take a quick break. And then when we, when we come back, we'll talk about the second main finding that you have identified so far. Uh, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong of the AAPI COVID-19 Project. And so before the break, um, you all were telling me about kind of two overarching findings that you have so far. Uh, one about this idea of risk assessment or risk management. Um, and then the second that you mentioned was um, the exacerbation of pre-existing social inequalities. So could you speak more to that finding? Yeah, thanks, Anna. Yeah, so in terms of this finding of uh, the theme of pre-existing pre social inequalities being exacerbated, we really intentionally wanted to talk to folks who were in sort of precarious, what we would consider precarious labor um, or, or precarious work conditions. Um, we, we've talked to some folks who have parents who work in the restaurant industry um, or work in um, like small, I guess you would consider them like mom and pop shops. Um, and that there's not necessarily a, a reliable social safety net for them. So we've had um, an interviewee actually who talked to me about how she was she lives in a multi-generational household, which also, um, you know, comes with a lot of other uh, risks because there's more people within the home. So it sort of also relates back to our earlier theme, um, but that her, her, her family, all of them got laid off because of the pandemic, except her father, who's a chef at a restaurant, which is um, a rest, this restaurant in particular is like a the chef is like very close to the patrons. Um, so it's like they cook in front of you essentially. Um, and she talked about ha having this fear for him getting sick or injured because you know he's constantly um, cooking. Um, but also the fact that because restaurant closures or there's more restaurant at the time, more restaurant regulations, he had cut hours. So not necessarily unemployed, like he still has a job, um, but that his hours are cut. So he doesn't necessarily like meet unemployment benefit regulations for the state that they live in, but he also doesn't make enough money for them to necessarily make ends meet. And normally she said pre-pandemic, you know, she had a paid internship. She was able to contribute to household finances, but because you know, her former workplace or internship wasn't paying anymore because they couldn't. Um, like he was the sole financial earner for her household, which also included, you know, other extended family members. Mm -hmm. And so there's this exacerbation of our, this already precarious labor condition that they had prior to the pandemic, but it's made even more difficult because um, they sort of fall under this bracket that that isn't covered because they're they can't they're not unemployed but they're also not making enough to to meet uh, basic needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one thing I would love if um, you all kind of just talked a little bit more about and 
So this idea of these social inequalities within Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, community, more broadly speaking, right? I think a lot of people have this uh, misunderstanding that Asians in America are kind of like crazy rich Asian kind of theme going on or just high, you know, again, highly educated or very much soci socioeconomically um, having made it, right? Um, but as both of you have, you know, kind of touched on throughout our time so far this morning, just like any other racial or ethnic community, right, there are various levels of stratification. So could you just talk a little bit more and kind of break down for our listeners what that stratification looks like within Asian American Pacific Islander communities in the US? So I think, um, I guess I'll start by just talking about income. And then I want to talk a little bit about the term Asian Pacific Islander, um, Asian American Pacific Islander. So first, um, you know, income is just like a very clear um, indicator of some of these inequalities. It's not the only kind of measure of inequality, uh, but I think very clearly when you look at um, average um, annual household income, uh, Asian Americans are um, on average uh, about like $70,000 per year. But then when you kind of parse that out, you can see that there's a very kind of like large spectrum um, that kind of then lead to that median, right? So um, my cat has just eaten some cotton, I think is about to choke on it, but it's okay. Anyway, so uh, so for instance, um, you have um, Indian Americans um, having a median income of about like $100,000 a year, and then Bangladeshi um, Americans having, I think maybe like, was it like, is it 40 something, I think? Kristen, did you remember? It was like 42,000, I think. Yes, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's somewhere around that. Yeah, so it's around there. So I think that, you know, that I think that really clearly uh, demonstrates how even if you kind of break things down by region, like even if you just look at Southeast, um, South Asian um, communities, there's still pretty enormous uh, disparities, right? Uh, and this often has to do with uh, waves of migration and how um, immigration policy has affected what types of groups come here. So my family, for instance, is Taiwanese American. Um, and so they came here, um, you know, my father to do his master's, my mom to do college, to do college. And this is kind of related to the opening up of um, immigration for, you know, East uh, people from East Asia in the 70s, that is very linked to education, right? And so I think then when you follow these different waves, um, and the differences, um, you know, from among immigrants, you know, in terms of their socioeconomic status in their home countries, and this kind of affects um, socioeconomic outcomes in the U.S., right? And so that's kind of contrary to the tiger mom myth, which is simply that, like, oh, Asian culture is so successful, and that's why, uh, you know, like, Asian Americans do well, right? That's, and we're kind of, you know, this is the information that uh, points the holes in that kind of idea. Um, so that kind of is just very clearly one way of thinking about um, some of the inequalities. Um, and, but on the point of Asian American and Pacific Islanders as a term, um, I think we have to be very uh, you know, careful in terms of how we use this term, because on one hand, there are these histories of solidarity between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, um, but there's a kind of a very problematic history of how, for instance, Asian American studies has um, attempted to include Pacific Islanders while also erasing their histories, right? And so um, the, with our partnership with the um, Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander um, policy and research team, um, we really try to respect the team's position that, you know, we can 
point towards um, the need to say like include um, Pacific Islander representatives for say like a speaking engagement or um, any other kind of um, you know uh, comment right uh, public comment. Um, but we can't speak on behalf of them, right? So I say this not to speak on behalf of Pacific Islanders, but just to kind of point out how um, there are these distinctions that we need to look at. And so even when we think about racism um, affecting this demographic, um, I've seen a lot of discussion from Pacific Islanders pointing out that to call it anti-AAPI hate is problematic because, um, and problematic for all sides, because the ways in which Pacific Islanders have been racialized and the types of experiences that they have are not necessarily the same as um, as um, many other um, as as Asian Americans, right? And so we need to kind of like draw um, that apart rather than just lumping them together. Um, so I think that that's kind of one way to think about that. One other thing I'll just say is that um, there's also I, I think we're in this interesting moment because right now there is a lot of attention to. Um, anti-Asian racism focusing on primarily people of East Asian descent, though we've seen some incidents affecting people outside of this um, kind of group. But we have other examples of anti-Asian racism that I don't know if the Asian American community like as a whole um, has accepted as um, you know precedent cases. Like for instance, um, after 9-11, um, backlash um, against Muslims um, and um, you know, Middle Eastern immigrant communities. And, you know, I would say that that's also kind of a legacy of anti-Asian racism, but I don't think that our community as a whole has really kind of um, adopted that viewpoint, right? And so I think that there are a lot of ways in which these differentials and privilege um, and, you know, the, um, the disparities in terms of who ends up speaking for our community often overlook some of these histories as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Christina, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I think Vivian covered um, the the crux of, of our findings and this, like, not even our, just our findings, but our team's position on, you know, we are predominantly an East Asian um, comprised team. We have folks um, who are like RAs and other team members who are not of East Asian background, but are I would say about maybe 80% of us are of East Asian descent. And I think we recognize the immense privilege that we have in being able to speak out and use our research platform. And I think in doing so, we're also really cognizant of the ways we incorporate other perspectives and existing research that's being done by Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities because they those researchers exist and those scholars exist and we should also um, amplify them and have them in the, the media too because um, Vivian, as Vivian mentioned, you know, the wave of anti-Asian racism in this current moment is targeting folks who look of East Asian descent, whether or not they actually are of that descent, it's sort of to, you know, to a racist, they don't actually care. They're not going to say, oh, are you Chinese before they like hit you in the face? They're going to just do it because they think you are, right? And so um, I think for me, I'm kind of wary of saying it doesn't impact Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders because if those folks um, are assumed to be uh, East Asian for whatever reason, it's going to impact them. And so th that's my own personal like perspective on it. But I also know Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander researchers who don't believe those th in that way. And so I think it's this constant conversation and reflection we have to have with each other and communities and with our, our own, you know, in our workplaces, if like, 
I guess I consider uh, the API COVID project my, my workplace, even though, you know, we're all um, virtual, but it's conversations that we're always having behind the scenes in our little Slack channels. Do you mind if I just add one more thing? So another thing I just want to say is that when we talk about race, racial violence, um, oftentimes there is this emphasis and understandably so on um, very visible forms of that, right? Um, so, you know, the um, murders in Atlanta is very clear, very visible, very visceral example of that. Um, but there are other forms of violence too. And I think that there are many forms of violence that just go overlooked. Um, and when we think about you know, how this pandemic has been violent, how's it, how is it, it's impacted people. We can also think about um, disproportionate mortality and illness among different communities, you know, um, Pacific Islander, um, you know, included within that, but uh, not only them. Um, and, you know, I think that our team is really thinking about violence as not only something that is happening in the context of um, of the moment of say getting uh, harassed, right, or being beaten up, but as this much deeper process um, that can affect many parts of life, right? So one of the things that we have, um, some of the things that we've heard about are our respondents talking about how the fear of, uh, you know, racial attacks, as well as the fear of COVID, uh, the fears and anxieties about um, their financial statuses, how this affects their health, right? So oftentimes when we think about COVID, um, we're thinking of this very specific virus, right? And um, how that manifests biologically, but we can also see stress as another outcome um, that then can affect people's bodies as well. And, you know, as many of us know who research this stuff, um, you know, stress does have an impact on health and can make people uh, especially vulnerable to different types of illnesses, right? So I think that, uh, you know, and I really draw on, because I do work in environmental sociology, I draw on the work of scholars such as Rob Nixon, who has this concept of slow violence that I think has been very helpful. And, um, and that kind of helps, um, that kind of guides how I think about, um, how do we um, look at the harm that is caused by a given event, right, or a given phenomena? Um, and, you know, just to kind of uh, add another thing onto that, you know, for instance, we can think about um, what are the, you know, how certain living in certain neighborhoods or say even um, being imprisoned and, and living um, in an incarcerated status, how that can make someone more vulnerable to uh, COVID. Um, but what leads, uh, what creates those conditions are these very long histories of violence, right? And so we can see how all these things compound each other. And, um, and it's really kind of difficult to isolate things um, into these discrete categories, since there's, there's so much um, con uh, continuation among different types of um, forms of violence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that point up of these kind of different types of violence that are, as you mentioned, compounding over time but also this kind of longer history that's enabling these specific types of violence in our current moment to present itself to compound as well. Um, let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
And we're back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm joined by Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong of the AAPI COVID-19 Project. So right before the break, we were talking about these, you know, these multiple forms of violence that we're seeing um, kind of maybe become a little more visible during COVID-19 um, and those effects, particularly on Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. And, you know, one thing that we kind of mentioned or touched on throughout our time this morning is this idea that anti-Asian uh, racism isn't new, right? It's just becoming, again, it is becoming more visible. So I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to what data shows as far as anti-Asian um, racism kind of pre-COVID and then since the beginning of COVID. Yeah, I, I mean, there, when, when people have asked me that question, it's sort of like, I don't even know where to point them to because there are so many examples. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, in the 1800s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first um, like form of legal legislation that prohibited immigration based off of race. Um, and that's something that a lot of folks don't know that, that you know, it, it was a racial, that's a racially motivated immigration order. Um, and so that, you know, that was the 18, in 1820, I might have to, 18, 18, thank you, 1882. Uh, I'm dating it back a little bit further, but um, I mean, I think we, we, we can have those instances, but I also, you know, I study the Asian American movement in the late sixties to the eighties, you know, um, and activists of that time talked a lot about how the Vietnam war are like the US presence in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Laos, uh, in Cambodia, that those are forms of anti-Asian violence. And a lot of folks in the anti-war movement um, who were not of Asian descent didn't register the Vietnam War as racial violence, but but more so just as imperialism or just you know um, like just U.S. aggression. But they didn't have a racial component to it. And I think a lot of activists of that time really understood the role that race plays in in U.S. Um, decisions to go to war. Um, and so internationally, but also domestic policies as well. So um, those are like just two examples that I can think of off the top of my head, but I know a lot of journalists have written about, you know, historical legacies of racial violence against Asians and Asian Americans um, in the wake of the Atlanta shootings. So if folks are more interested in that, we're actually releasing a resource guide um, on Monday. So um, hopefully that will help point uh, folks to some other resources as well. Yeah, I think a key point that um, Christina has just underscored is that when we think about violence, we have to think, we have to go beyond this sort of episodic um, framework, right? Where we're thinking about, okay, you know, on Wednesday, XYZ happens, you know, two years ago, this happened, right? Uh, but think about kind of the larger structure. And I think what, um, what we can see from looking at these examples of um, immigration laws and um, you know, even laws around segregation um, that were impacting Asian immigrants in California um, is that you know, racism is a structure. It's a durable structure that can um, adapt to different times. So it's also flexible. Um, and so I think that even when, you know, it's not necessarily like racism doesn't happen necessarily at the point where 
somebody is punching someone else in the face, right? It's, it's a structure that um, creates a foundation for various forms of exclusion. And I think that um, the most conspicuous form of that is, is physical violence, right? But there are various forms of violence that precede that. Um, we can think about, you know, and this is something that we've been talking a lot about, um, and it's particularly, particularly um, relevant to this question of massage workers, um, because, you know, there's been, um, you know, there's there's been kind of political organizing on behalf of them, um, you know, through the group Red Canary Song. Um, but there's this conversation right now about how do we deal with anti-Asian racism? And a lot of people have kind of mulled over this question about policing, right, and criminal justice. And so one of the, uh, you know, points that we're grappling with is how policing has, in fact, impacted a lot of Asian immigrant communities negatively, right? So Asian immigrants working in informal uh, economies, Asian immigrants um, working in economies that are not legal, right? Uh, such as, you know, and, and I don't want to necessarily uh, conflate all, you know, massage labor with sex work, right? But there are sometimes some overlaps. Um, and, um, and also, you know, um, a number, you know, we have significant, um, undocumented uh, uh, populations within kind of the larger Asian demographic. So um, these are all, you know, part, these are all kind of part of this larger calculus of violence that is impacting Asians and Asian Americans um, that often doesn't get um, seen. And it's, it's kind of only at the point of this very extreme visible form of violence that people, um, that the broader media kind of uh, gain, uh, you know, develops attention uh, to these issues. And I think that can, that's been kind of frustrating for a lot of people too. I know that, you know, like I think that I saw someone tweet, um, was it maybe, was it Anthony Ocampo? Uh, Christina, I don't know if you remember this, but I think he said something like, you know, Asian um, women, Asian American women have had stories, you know, um, you know, besides just this, like, or, or like Asian, Asian American women have stories, you know, um, every other 51, um, every other week of the year, right, is not only when this violence, this, this extreme violence happens that we have something to share. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I love the way that you put it where, you know, racism is, you know, it's ongoing, right? It is, you know, all these smaller moments over our lifetime, but also over time, right? And not just the moment of the physical attack itself, right? Uh, but we do tend to focus on that physical attack. And as you mentioned, you know, seeing a lot of, you know, organizing in the wake specifically of the Atlanta mass shooting. And I'm wondering, um, from your research so far, have you seen any changes and how the folks you've talked to or surveyed are thinking about their collective identity as Asian Americans or maybe under some other, you know, umbrella term. Um, how do you see COVID-19 and anti-Asian racism impacting how the folks you're talking to are thinking about themselves and community? Um, yeah, so I think one thing that, um, you know, we are exploring right now, which I'm trying to develop into a paper, um, is thinking about how, um, you know, anti-Asian racism in this particular form has uh, pushed some Asian Americans to think about their identities more and to think about what does racism mean? Because I think, you know, for as sociologists, these are questions that we think about all the time, right? So like I take a shower, I'm like, oh, racism, right? <laughs> and like brushing my teeth. And like, these are, uh, they constantly have to think about all this stuff, but I don't think it's necessarily um, a topic that everybody is thinking about all the time. 
And I think particularly because the narrative around Asian Americans, especially East Asian Americans has been that um, we have been successful. Um, a lot of people have not, a lot of Asian Americans have not necessarily engaged with these questions for better or worse. Sometimes I know a lot of them have felt that they don't know how to, or that they don't feel they have the right to, right? And so I think that the um, kind of intensification of anti-Asian racism has, um, you know, forced them to kind of think of some of these questions. And, you know, something that's interesting that is coming up as a theme, which, you know, we still have to kind of analyze more, is that um, alongside this, the, um, the upswell in, um, in protests against uh, pr police brutality impacting um, Black communities, um, especially in the wake of uh, George Floyd over the summer, that actually also was um, a sort of uh, framework that a lot of our respondents referred to to kind of think about their own racial identities, right? And so I think a lot of them um, were thinking about Black Lives Matter, right? And thinking about um, racism in this broader sense and thinking about uh, broader kind of anti-racist coalitions across, you know, uh, different races, right? So I think those were questions that came out. And I think that it speaks both to like the potential for solidarity as well as the kind of greater work that we need to do within Asian American politics and studies to, um, you know, help offer frameworks that are more useful, right? Because I don't, I think that it is kind of a misstep to, um, to predicate Asian American politics in the politics of other POC communities, but rather I think we need to kind of think about how these exchanges have overlapped over time, right? So kind of what I had mentioned earlier in terms of early segregation laws, um, we, you see how uh, segregation laws that then kind of became the foundation for um, educational segregation impacting, you know, um, black students and white students, how that kind of took shape in early laws um, about, you know, um, you know, schooling impacting Asian immigrants, right? So I think that rather than thinking about there's one, um, you know, set of racial politics that then precedes others, we can think about how a lot of these different communities um, have been racialized in tandem, right? And so I think that those types of connections are really important to make. Yeah, I, I love the answer, Vivian. And I just want to build on that because I think Vivian's right, a lot of our respondents have talked about how Black Lives Matter and the movement against police brutality, particularly against Black folks in the U.S., have motivated them to think about racial identity beyond their Asian-ness and think about how they are situated in this broader landscape of race within the U.S. context. Um, just yesterday, a colleague of mine who's um, a Chinese international student I was just checking in to see how she was doing. And she just said very plain, like, I'm really sad. I thought after last summer, things are gonna get better. Like people, people were in solidarity with each other. Like they knew that racism sucks. So why is like, why is this still happening? And it just, I mean, it just hit me like exactly what Vivian says. We, there's still so much that we have to do to educate ourselves and to be in actual solidarity with one another. Um, and something that, um, Tiffany Dianso said in a panel I was hosting earlier this week, um, she's from the Asian American Feminist Collective, she said that solidarity to her is like relationships. And when you think about the ways that you're in relation with your friends or your family, it's sort of innate that yeah, you care about them, you're in solidarity with them, you want what's best for them. It's not even a question of like political 
um, affiliation or anything. It's like you care about that person because you have a relationship with that person um, for better or worse. And so I try and think about that when we're doing our research, when we're thinking about the broader movement for justice for people of color in, in this country and in the greater world. Um, like how, how would I want a friend of mine who was of a different race or ability or gender identity to feel when I'm when I'm with them and like how, how do I want to be like so in support of them um, and that's helped me a little bit I think in in framing how to move forward because it's been hard this week mm-hmm. and you know just to kind of tag onto that um, I think what that also uh, points to is the need to think about process right when we uh, talk about solidarity uh, oftentimes people focus again, like on this um, kind of the framework of an event, right? Or trigger Uh, people um, and, you know, just kind of give you a very concrete example. Um, My book project looks at that in the context of mobilization after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, right? This moment kind of being treated as an awakening that then uh, drew out um, people who would not have kind of considered themselves activists before to then get involved with this. Um, But what I kind of found was that um, precisely because the moment was so powerful in creating this momentum, it uh, attempted to kind of gloss over a lot of these existing tensions and did so in a way that was really complicated, right? And so I think similarly, we often, um, you know, as a, you know, general public respond to a moment or respond to um, a something that seems like a crisis and then just want to jump in and act on it. And I think that's a very human um, impulse, but really when you think about what makes more, you know, the most effective forms of organizing, it is organizing that has been going on for a while that has been, uh, you know, developed and maintained over years. And I think like right now, for instance, you know, there's a lot of attention to Red Canary Song um, because they're of their work organizing massage workers. Um, but they didn't just come out in response to the Atlanta shooting. They have been, they've existed for a long time uh, to organize people. And so I think similarly, um, when we think about developing relationships and developing solidarity, it involves um, thinking about how how are people connected to each other and how do you build upon that in a way that honors people's contributions um, rather than, you know, creating a situation in which people feel exploited. Um, I think that is part of the challenge too. And I think that's part of the, um, that can be a really major source of tension among active, within activist communities, uh, because oftentimes there's this question about, you know, who's doing the labor and um, are those people receiving the respect for that labor? Who's trying to claim credit, things like that, right? So I think that's that's really key. Um, Our project, I think, tries to, be as respectful as pro- as possible in terms of, um, you know, not trying to be overly territorial and also um, trying to foster these connections rather than trying to hoard opportunities and things like that. I, that's how I, I try to manage things. Mm-hmm. I think this is so key, this point about solidarity and really solidarity work being relationship work, right? And when we think about relationships, 
whatever relationships we have, those are connections that are fostered over time with care and mutual trust. And that's a lot of work, right? <laughs> Especially as we're thinking about folks who might just be recently coming to this kind of racialized or politicized identity. And as you mentioned, Vivian, trying to kind of jump in and like save the day or get, you know, super involved. Um, but understanding that people and organizations have been doing this work for a long time, right? And that we do have to um, have some care and mutual respect um, as we're engaging in this very important you know, solidarity as well. Um, so I just wanna ask you all one more question. Um, what are your plans for the AAPI project moving forward? Kind of where are you now? I know you all mentioned having finished um, a number of interviews, but what kind of, what is moving forward looking like for you? And what are your hopes as far as the outcomes of this project? Yeah, I'll speak briefly to, you know, our immediate goals are to um, continue doing uh, interviews with people who identify as Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, um, whether they're currently in the U.S. or if they're not currently in the U.S., that's fine too. Um, we just want to get um, a variety of perspectives and folks from different um, educational backgrounds and uh, geographic regions within the U.S. and if they're in the U.S. Um, and we're, we're soon going to launch um, our national survey. So that's for folks who identify as AAPI or um, NHPI um, and also folks who don't. So white um, and non-Asian people of color as well. Um, that's gonna be led by our quantitative uh, committee. Uh, and as I said earlier in the show, we're going to be releasing our preliminary findings report and also an anti-Asian um, violence resource guide with a bunch of educational materials and um, a directory of some community organizations as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And where can people find out more info? Uh, they can w visit our website, which uh, Christina um, lovingly put together, and it is uh, API covid19.org. Did I get that correct? Okay. Um, we are also on Twitter. Um, I don't remember our Twitter handle. <laughs> are we oh, gonna edit the handle is different. It is, it's AAPI underscore COVID-19. And Vivian, did you have something you wanted to close us out with today? Well, I think that, you know, I've just been just like looking at social media, seeing how people are responding to what happened. Um, I just, I just feel like a lot of people are really stressed right now. And I think that is important to, um, I, I kind of feel like everybody needs to like chill out a little bit. Right. And, and maybe relax. And I, I, I say that not just kind of in a flippant way. I really think that, that there needs to be some kind of emotional easing and maybe that may not seem like a, like a super like big leap forward, but I think that it's necessary. Um, and I know that there are different, um, not everyone has the opportunity to relax, but I do think that as much as possible, people kind of need to take care of their hearts a little bit, take care of the hearts of people around them, um, try to be nice to someone rather than mean. Um, and I, I mean, because it's, it's very hard to address some of these huge structural issues, but I think you can try to still foster um, a sense of love and compassion in your like interpersonal um, interactions. And usually like if you're nice to people then you feel better too. Right. So I think it's kind of like just very selfishly can be, um, can be helpful.
you know, checking in with yourself and making sure that you're doing okay, because there's just so much heavy stuff going on right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong of the AAPI COVID-19 Project. It was so great to have you two with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you again to Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong of the AAPI COVID-19 Project. For today's positive note, I want to leave you with a quote by Asian American activist Yuri Kochiyama, who said, unless we know ourselves and our history and other people in their history, there is really no way that we can have positive kinds of interaction where there is real understanding. So let this be your encouragement to really dig deep, not only into your history, but into the history of other communities within the U.S. as well. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. And remember, you can always tune in on WYXR.org. And the previous shows are archived there as well. Can't wait for you to join me again next Saturday morning.